Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And we are at the second event in our Pacific Northwest tour, and we are recording before a live audience. Live audience, are you there? Now you know, I am not lying. It's actually uh, in a pub, and there are human beings with us. You know, that's not been the case for a while, because, you know, now we live in different places. Uh, We've left Tom in Connecticut. Tom is sad in Connecticut. Terrible, as they say in Spanish. <laughs> That's right. But uh, Glenn, you're living where now? I'm in South Bend, Indiana. With, with your wife, Lynn? With my wife, Lynn, and both of my kids, both of whom are engaged, both of whom are getting married, and that's why South Bend is the place to be. That's, that's right. That's, <laughs> it's a lot so, of sunshine there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they got a lot of sunshine. That's right. And so anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I think I've noted it uh, to some folks here in the room, but I serve a church in Vancouver, Westminster Presbyterian Church, and they have gone to the trouble of setting up this event for us tonight and uh, this afternoon, uh, these two events, and we're really pleased with all the things they've done to make this possible. And I've written a few books, and I've got a new book coming out on Tom Bombadil that is um, already uh, available for pre-order, and I'm excited about that. But enough about me. Why don't we go to you, Tom, and then we'll go to Glenn. Uh, Tom Price. Uh, I teach systematic theology, philosophy, uh, ethics, and a bunch of other things uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and University of St. Joseph, uh, among other places. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and I used to be a professor of philosophy. I taught for about 10 years at the college level. Anyway, Glenn, you. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor. And in my retirement, in my copious spare time, I'm working full-time for Reflections Ministries, headed by Ken Boa in Atlanta. And along with that, I am a senior fellow with uh, Breakpoint, uh, writing some of the Breakpoint commentaries each month. And I've got another ministry that uh, I run called Every Square Inch Ministries. Well, here we are, and uh, we were just sharing with the folks who are with us that kind of blows us away that... In the course of two years, we've gone from like, you know, three people listening to us, which and those were our wives. <laughs> <laughs> and even that was sometimes shaky. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. To, uh, you know, we think about 10,000 people around the world. We get, uh, you know, communiques from people all over the place, Brazil, Philippines, UK, UK Australia. Anyway, uh, we're grateful that all the folks who listen to us listen to us. And as uh, folks who listen to us on a regular basis know, we just kind of take turns with the topic of the day. And today, at this time of the day, it's Glenn's turn. So what are we talking about, Glenn? Okay, I'm picking up on an article from Touchstone. Tom did that in the last episode. Uh, The article is written by a guy named uh, Louis Marcos. Tom did that in the last episode. (laughs) This is a different article. (laughs) But this is a different article. And it's called Saving the Theophanies. Now... The article focuses on a guy named Owen Barfield. Before you go there, what's a theophany? A theophany is the, an appearance of God. Okay? And we'll, I'll explain the title as we go along. When you see his, He doesn't really come out and tell you why he titled it that until you get toward the end. You, you can figure it out. But uh, I'll follow his lead there. The, uh, the article focuses on a guy named Owen Barfield. Barfield was one of the Inklings. And he was one of the people who influenced Lewis toward Christianity. Tolkien was the key person who, who um, really convinced Lewis to become a Christian. 
But Barfield was really heavily influential in nudging them in that direction. So let, let's take a little, little time here to, to describe the Inklings. So the Inklings, because I know a lot of folks who listen to us on a regular basis know all about them, but maybe a, a first-time listener is not uh, clued in on who the Inklings were. So C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, as, many, as well as many other important books like Mere Christianity, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote, obviously, The Lord of the Rings and many other things, uh, Owen Barfield, who's not so well-known, uh, Charles, Williams, Charles Williams, who's yeah. not as well-known, but all these guys and many others were friends. And they, they used to meet in a pub, Eagle and Child, right, which uh, right. I used to attend <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> with many friends. Um, and, and they were all Oxford Dons at the University of Oxford. And so they would meet here and read each other's writings, critique each other, and just fellowship. Yeah, and so this marvelous, it's kind of like this marvelous thing that these really influential people were friends and encouraged each other in their faith and kind of critiqued each other and made each other better. But Owen Barfield is who we're kind of talking about today. Yeah, now, Barfield was, in fact, a, um, a real Christian, a uh, more or less Orthodox Christian, but he was heavily influenced by a guy by the name of Rudolf Steiner. Steiner was, if I... Well, the politest word I can use for Steiner is he was heterodox, <laughs> uh, which, which is another way of saying that, well... He was wrong about certain he things. He was wrong. About, he was fundamentally... <laughs> thank you. Yes. Um, uh, Steiner was the founder of a sort of new spirituality thing called anthroposophy. And, it's like a household name today. Yeah. Yeah. And Barfield actually liked a lot of what Steiner said and tried to sort of rehabilitate and Christianize him a bit. Um, the particular book that... Marcos is dealing with in this article was called Saving the Appearances. And that's a phrase, if you, for people who are in history of science, that, that's a phrase that we all know. Um, I, I've done work in history of science. Let's and assume the, people have not. Yeah, I, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, the, the idea of saving the appearances, well, let, let's, let's take it with astronomy. This is the easiest example. Um, in the, 16th, in the 16th century, prior to Copernicus, everybody assumed that the Earth was the center of the universe. The planets orbited the Earth, as did the stars and everything else. Because it appeared that way. It, because it appeared that way. But here's the problem. If you just sort of draw circles and things like that, it doesn't work. You cannot predict the positions of planets and, and so on. Uh, in fact, compared to if you compare the movement of planets to the stars, you will see planets will move in one direction for a little bit, then they'll reverse direction, then they'll go forward again. It's called retrograde motion. How do you explain that? Well, a guy named Ptolemy came up with a system to make this work, and it involved epicycles and equants and deference and all kinds of complex things, which he figured out by hand using Roman numerals to do all the math for this. And he came up with a system that saved the appearances. That is to say, that explained what it was that you saw when you looked up the night sky. Now, by the 16th century, this is a thousand years later, the accumulated errors, actually more than a thousand, the accumulated errors that built up within the system meant that it no longer really fit. So the question is, what do we do to save the appearances? How do we come up with a system that will, in fact, predict 
where things are with, with what they're doing. Okay, so that's what the term saving the appearances means. Now, Barfield is going to use that as sort of a jumping off point to explain what Steiner, the guy with anthroposophy, that guy, uh, to explain what Steiner believed about the history of the evolution of consciousness. Okay. I, th okay, that, that, phrase, jump, that phrase by itself is yeah. going to be a little bit of a problem. But this is what Steiner meant. He said that early on in history, up until really about the fourth century, people lived in a very, well, natural relationship with the natural world. They saw themselves as integrated into the natural world, all of these kinds of things. And they, they related to the natural world in a, I would use the word naive sort of spiritual way. With the institutionalization, this is Steiner, not me. It, with the institutionalization of Christianity in the fourth century, we began to move away from that. And so when you get to the period of the scientific revolution, by then, we are beginning to see the world not as something that, is, that we're part of and that, that we're integrated into, but it's something that is outside of us, something that is objective something that is distinct from us, so that if you actually pulled human beings out of the universe, the universe would just sort of continue functioning the way it always did. It, there's really no way of integrating a connection between us and the universe. And that's what he talks about when, he, when he's referring to a, a uh, change in consciousness or an evolution of consciousness. That's the thing that Steiner is pointing to. Now, now, I think, it's, I think it's worthwhile kind of just saying kind of parenthetically at this point that this is not the way most people are, are taught the, the, you know, um, concerning the development of, of sort of the intellectual life of the West. Most people are presented with this, this notion that Christianity in particular is a kind of, well, um, retrograde uh, system of thought that has held back the development of an understanding of scientifically of the of the of the universe, uh, but what Steiner is saying, what Barfield says, and what many other I think informed historians of of, of sort of you know a thought know is that Christianity itself was a kind of revolution uh, in the history of thought that helped to eventually bring about what we now call the scientific revolution. If there had been no Christian revolution, there would have been, there never would have been a scientific revolution. Right. Um, all the major figures in the scientific revolution were Christians. And I would argue that science itself relies on a whole lot of assumptions that are drawn from Christianity. So, for example, people in the scientific revolution believed that God created everything, God is a rational being. He may be more than that or super rational, but he is at least rational, which means that the universe he made makes sense. Human beings are made in the image of God. Now, that means a lot of different things, but it also means, among other things, that we're rational. And what that means is that we should be able to look at the way the universe works and figure out the laws that govern it because God made a rational universe. We're rational, we should be able to figure out how it works. And further, doing that is actually a theological activity, because it is revealing the mind of God. Mm -hmm. Now, those ideas are all articulated by people in the scientific revolution. Uh, Johannes Kepler 
talked about um, what he was doing as thinking God's thoughts after him. Okay? That, that was all his astronomical work was. Um, so if you contrast this with a sort of naturalistic or, or atheistic view of the world, what you have, the, the creation myth for, for the atheist, is that for reasons we don't know, the universe exploded into existence. Then, by, at that point, the laws of physics came into being. And, and when the laws of physics came into being, that governed the behavior of everything from that point on. Um, physics is really the foundation for chemistry and everything else. So by the laws of physics, eventually stars, galaxies, planets, and so on form. Then, even though the first law of biology is that life does not come from non-life, on one planet, it did. <laughs> At least one planet. And so life comes into existence. My daughter describes this as the Frankenstein theory. You know, you get all of the different chemicals and pieces of life, they come together, you hit it with lightning, and it's alive! Okay, so life comes into existence, and then, by a process of random chance actually governed by the immutable laws of physics, your brain develops. Now, under these circumstances, why does it make sense to assume that your brain is capable of understanding anything, much less the workings of the universe? Why assume that the universe is even rational? Why assume that it isn't governed fundamentally by chaos? You know, none of these things are assumptions that the system itself would suggest to you. And there's no reason why you should be able to understand it. It's only on the foundation of Christian assumptions that science actually works. So this, this I think, also will help us address maybe an objection that people have sometimes when this matter is, is brought up. Um, why... You know, when people ask the question, why did science develop in the West, the, uh, the explanation isn't that we're smarter than anybody else. It's not that, you know, something about, you know, Western people uh, made it possible for them uh, because of some kind of biological difference or some evolved sort of, sort of uh, advantage to do this. It's because uh, for, uh, you know, God's own reasons in God's time, uh, God, uh, you know, uh, was incarnate as as Jesus of Nazareth, uh, you know, and that the word of that incarnation and the salvation that God uh, has uh, made possible for us, the, the the announcement of that has spread in a particular direction into the West, largely, but other other directions as well. But uh, there's no sort of like uh, reason why we should be proud, in other words, that science developed in the West. Uh, it's God's grace and God's providential ordering of things that made it occur that way. And we know perfectly well that people from other parts of the world and other cultures can master the scientific method really quite uh, uh, well, you know, and, and, uh, and make great scientists. I think, um, and, and you know, I don't want to get ahead on the article, but um, and, and I think, in light of all of this, um, there's a there's a there's a kind of uh, there's a really profound turn I think Barfield is up to, and I, I don't know if I can articulate this well, but I'm going to try. Um, Barfield, it's saving the appearances, um, is, is on to retrieving something um, first and foremost that a classical world would have taken for granted. 
Um, let, let's think, uh, let's imagine ourselves into a different way of relating to things. Um, for most of us who have been impacted by the modern world and naturalism and materialism, we take the surface that we experience right now, I mean, a menu, this beer, this microphone, my voice, we take that material reality to be the primary reality. That's what we, we feel like we have immediate access to, the phenomena, the appearance, right? The appearance that I sense through my senses. I touch this and I feel it right now. That's what's real. The classical world didn't think that way. They do, almost the reverse. It's the exact opposite of that. That is mediated to you through existence, which isn't material, which is the condition for there to be a material world. It's a spiritual and conscious. Consciousness is the fundamental reality, not matter. Now, I don't, know if, I don't remember if Bar Barfield's critique was that in, in Christianity, that kind of got, with the incarnation and the significance of matter, that got um, eclipsed. Um, but it did get eclipsed as modern science took off later. Um, he's wrong if it got eclipsed in, in the whole, whole development of Christianity because Christianity tried to balance both of those things. And that's why Lewis and Tolkien went the direction they did, that beyond nature. Nature, nature and its order are not, the, they are not self-sustaining, therefore they're not the primary reality. It's the spiritual reality in the, in, in the conscious reality, the, the rational reality that makes sense of them, that mediates them, that is the real thing. Um, and so as scripture says, the invisible attributes are clearly seen through the visible, right? The visible, is, it doesn't manifest itself, it, it manifests the source that gives it to us. So it was the exact opposite way of thinking that, that the modern world has. And so to save the appearance um, is actually, in some sense, um, a way of saying that how do we talk about material reality the right way, um, recognizing it's not self-standing. Yeah, uh, Barfield, um, I'll, I'll just read a paragraph from this. Barfield sees the break taking place with the development of science. And it's much along the lines of, of, of what you're saying, although there, we've got to bring in Bacon and Galileo eventually. But um, the, the modern science, Barfield argued, had killed the mystery of nature and the cosmos, not by telling us how they work, astronomy, but by telling us that they work apart from both ourselves and our creator. The goal Barfield set, now that, that's the problem. We see the universe, we see the physical world um, with moder the development of modern science as being autonomous, as being completely self-governing, self-standing, as, yeah. self as having no connection to us, no connection to a creator, nothing like that. It just is, okay? And now the problem, he, uh, Marcos points out later, is that once you objectify the cosmos, once you make it an object, it's inevitable that you also objectify people and turn them into objects, not subjects. You begin to depersonalize your, your, the world in a very real way, uh, socially and every other way. Now, so I, I read something recently here that kind of picks up on that. So we've gone from a world, according to this comment, commentator, in which we appeal to people using reasons and arguments to get them to do what we think 
should be done. Now we've moved to a world of nudges and, uh, you know, sort of uh, kind of uh, rewards and punishments exclusively uh, at the expense of reasons. So our governing officials don't feel like they need to, uh, you know, be accountable to us for the reasons behind their decisions. They, 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 they're convinced they're doing the right thing and that we just need to be forced, forced yeah. to do and go along. And we all know what I'm talking about right now. There was, there was an old saying with Pavlov's dog, if you remember the uh, behavioral experiences, experiments, um, that uh, when um, the dogs or uh, people start doing the experience on humans, uh, that's when we have to worry. I think that's what's happening right there. Right. Yeah, we're all <laughs> supposed to salivate right now when the bell rings. <laughs> yeah. Um, Barfield, Barfield's goal then, you know, when you get this idea of, of separating us from the universe, Barfield's goal was to find a way of reintegrating us, okay? And he talked about this in terms of um, a, a lot of terminology, which we'll probably get into later. Um, he said, you know, when human beings were created, we had what he called original participation in the universe, okay? This is just the way that we were created naturally to be. Um, However, with the fall, with Christ, with all kinds, with, with the development of science and the change of consciousness that occurs there, uh, what he's looking for is a kind, what he calls final participation. And, and uh, Marcos uses as an illustration here some of the romantic poets. Yeah, and, this, is, this is fine. This yeah. Is fine. I'm not going to get into the details here, um, but Coleridge, Wordsworth, others, uh, in many of their poems, talk about the sort of alienation that they feel from nature. You know, they talk about how when they were a kid, they, they felt, you know, they felt connected with the natural world in, in some really profound ways. Nature was all in all. Um, but as they got older, they experienced a growing alienation from this, a separation from it. They were recognizing, well, in keeping with the changes in culture that occurred with the scientific revolution, they began to see themselves as separate from nature, as alienated from it. You know, this is kind of an interesting thing about uh, in relationship to I heard, something I heard Carl Sagan say once. You know, Carl Sagan, you know, is very much, you know, kind of the personification of the modern scientific atheist, right? For those who don't know who I'm talking about, he was the guy behind the first the first uh, Cosmos or Cosmos series on PBS back in the back in the '80s and so forth. But he would talk about the wonder of childhood and how that was, you know, the wonder that was. Uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, it kind of brought about because of this marvelous natural world that we see around us. And he talked about kind of a disenchantment. I wonder if maybe people like him uh, today, you know, we were talking about, what's the guy from Dawkins, you know? Uh, I wonder if some of, if some, of the, uh, some of the, some of the people who, who pursue a career in science aren't in some sense trying to get back to the wonder that they felt when they were children. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah, um, and that, by the way, strongly suggests to me that parents who raise their kids with iPads are probably making a really, really big mistake. You want them to get out and experience the wonder of the world well, rather than always doing it mediated by a screen. It, it's, it's our first encounter. I mean, what is, what is a child's first laugh and cheer? You think of little children when they're learning something the first time, and they're utterly amazed at things we now take for granted. 
I mean, they're, you know, in, in thrills. Well, it, it, it's the... I poke my sister in the eye, yeah, and, and she screams. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But it's the, it's the sheer delight of being. That's what it is. It's right. their encounter that this things are. And their encounter with that, that's, that's the foundation of philosophy, it's the foundation um, of, of theology, for that matter. Right, the, right. The, wonder, the, well, the philosophy, she, wasn't it Socrates, or maybe it was Plato speaking through Socrates, talked about wonder? Wonder is the, fa- yeah. that's the foundation of philosophy. Because what it does is, it's exactly this, it, it is that which the, the ordinary um, is seen in the light of, of something that is, is, is real ground and which can't be reduced to the matter, to the, to the appearance, to the phenomena. It's that which breaks through. It's the visible attesting to the invisible. It's, it's that which sheer, in, in, in Romans says, should evoke gratitude and thankfulness, right? I mean, for, for the person who, who, who sees that in, in a, some kind of... Um, spiritually sound way, but I mean that—that's the kind of thing we're after here. Yeah, and Barfield thinks that, and what what Barfield's great goal is is to find a way that he says we can never go back. We can't go back to a medieval vision of the world. It's impossible. You know, our our our, the, our consciousness has evolved. It's changed. We see the world in different ways. We perceive our relationship with the world in different ways. We can't just erase that and go back to it. So we can't just get kind of medieval clothing and wear it around and kind of. Well, <laughs> well, actually, you can, but it wo- but it won't help. Um, but but um, what what he does say is that, and and some again, some of the romantic poets go here. I mean, there are some of them that talk about transcending this alienation and coming up with a deeper understanding and appreciation of their connection with nature. One that would, you know, if I, if I can put it in my words, one that would combine the, the feeling of connection, the wonder, all of that kind of thing, with an appreciation of the science. And actually, I would take it a step further and say, that through the, an appreciation and understanding of the science, it deepens our wonder and our feeling of connection in everything else. The problem is that we typically don't get to that step, that overall, most people are left in this situation where they do feel distant from the world around them. They do feel that kind of alienation, if I may take a word from Marx here. Okay, so there, there's this kind of alienation people have from the world. But, we, but what Barfield is proposing, and this is following Rudolf Steiner, the anthroposophist, um, what, what, what he's proposing is that there is a way to transcend this, where you can, almost in a Hegelian way, where you can, you know, Hegel argued that, you know, you would have one idea that dominated a culture, he called this the thesis. It would generate its opposite, that's the antithesis. And eventually the two of them would merge together to form a synthesis. And that would be conflictually, and that would be the creation of this new idea governing the culture. Um, What he's suggesting is something almost Hegelian here, where you have this old kind of participation in the world, which we can never really get back to. You've got the alienation, and what we need to do is combine the two so that the science and this feeling of connection and interrelationship, interlinking, the, the... uh, meaning, all of that kind of stuff is recovered. And that's what he calls final participation. Original participation is a simple, naive way of looking at it. Final participation 
which he even associates with things like the new heavens and new earth, is what he believes we should be working toward. Yes. Now, in a, I think, a earlier phase of the sort of development of the academy, thinking about colleges, universities, and so forth, that was uh, kind of the, what they were aspiring to, to, to see happen. You know, you had the sciences, which were looking at surfaces, which were always considered to be not quite um, as profound and significant as the humanities. Yeah. Humanities, you know, philosophy, languages, so forth, these were understood to be the, sor the sources of meaning. And the, and the goal was that through a, you know, a liberal arts education, that you, there'd be a kind of integrating process that goes on where a person would learn the scientific, uh, you know, technique uh, to acquire knowledge concerning the physical workings of the world, and that this would be supplemented in some way by the humanities. Yeah. The humanities, as we know, have completely thrown in the towel. Yeah. I mean, they've actually gone over to the other side. Now, I'm not talking about the sciences. They've gone over to the other side in terms of evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, so what you've got now is this just huge gap when it comes to meaning. People don't go to college. Uh, well, if they go to college and look for meaning, what they're going to get is that some other group of people is evil and that they need yeah, to be a man Manichaean view of the world. You right. know, either right. or, us, them. Right. If you're not in, you're out. I mean, it, it's very, it is very childlike without the wonder. Um, yeah, that tends to be dominating most of the intellectual discourse, zero-sum game thinking. Um, yeah, one, one, that, one that, again, is working so much on the surface as if, it's, if, as if it's everything, that it's reduced to these kind of simplistic interpretations. Of course, they're great at coining great language and, you know, sexy terminology. You know, they can get out with a vocabulary, no one knows what they're talking about, and it's got all this flavor to it like it's at the forefront. But it's just neologism. It's just terms that have been um, uh, uh, developed to sound scientific because there isn't anything really driving of substance and interpretation yeah. driving it. You know, when, <laughs> I, when, I, when I was on the job market for, um, for my university job, that was the, the heyday of postmodernism. And um, I, I went to the American Historical Association to do interviews, you know, or to try to find an interview. Somebody wanted to maybe consider hiring me. Didn't have a lot of luck, but eventually. Um, but I remember going into one session that was on postmodern theory. And I went in the room, it was about 11 o'clock, I went into the room and, okay, I got a reasonably good vocabulary. <laughs> I'm a reasonably bright person. I listened to what these guys were, talk, were saying and I was thinking, I don't understand a word these people are saying. <laughs> I, I, just, I just don't get this. Yeah. And everybody in the room is sitting there, the people who are there, seriously, they're sitting there and they're listening and they're nodding sagely. And I am willing to bet that every one of them was thinking about where they were going to go for lunch rather than listening to the speaker. Yeah. Okay. Because it gets, they're, they're, I would say they're not very good at creating words. They do, they do it a lot, but they don't do it well. That's right. Yeah. Because, because they don't, you know, they, they don't communicate. Roger Scruton called this uh, the nonsense machine. 
Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot to that. Yeah, it's 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 really connected, developed in a connected way to psychology to to to, to use rhetoric to trigger. Mm. It's trigger language, right? If you say the right sets of things that can trigger off certain psychologies and you can form people to be shaped by those triggers, then that language has this profound effect. So mention the word and boom, watch the watch the reaction happen. I mean, it's yeah, it's a form of manipulation. Academics are filled with manipulation these days. I know I work in the environment. I work with them. Actually, I was around them when they were creating this stuff. I mean, oh yeah, we, we remember were. it. Yeah, but get, but but today we're, we're kind of at this uh, phase of, of of things within academe in which uh, I think we're kind of at a crisis moment. Uh, if there's no uh, uh, recovery uh, of meaning, if we if, if meaning is just simply su- subjective. Yeah, and it's all about getting your way. Yeah, the academy is over. Yeah, it's over. Yeah, and the only thing that can save the academy is Christianity, because Christianity is the only intellectual tradition that has what it needs, and that's because it's the intellectual tradition out of which it came. Yeah, and this is something about saving the appearances, right? I mean, you end up you you end up saving reality and and the surface by not making the surface the whole of reality and grounding it in the eternal logos, um, which is, was the very issue at stake with the postmodernists, right? They wanted to say, all you had is signs and signifiers. All you have is la- language down. endlessly referring to other language, never resolving upon an ultimate ground. Um, of course, you have language, and you have, you have it signifying. Those things are not self-standing. That's right. Well, as Christians... At least this is the way Christians should think. Christians believe that things that are unseen are more real than things that are seen. This is bringing us back. Second to, Corinthians yeah. chapter four, verse eighteen. The mm-hmm. Apostle Paul says that very thing. Yeah. It's amazing to me when I talk to many Christians that this is brand new. They have never heard that. Yeah. I don't know. They when they got to that verse and they were reading their Bibles, they just skipped over yeah. it. Or my my guess is that that no one ever helped them understand it. Well, and think of I mean think of I mean Saint. Uh, St. John's Gospel. We'll get back to Barfield, I promise. <laughs> but St. John's Gospel, what you have is Jesus asking St. Peter, right? Who are people say that I am? And some will, they read them on the surface. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're the son of this. Some say this. Well, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the son of the living God. Blessed are you above all because flesh and blood, the surface didn't reveal it to you, but my Father who is in heaven, okay? The spiritual is that which is most real and interprets the phenomena, the historical Christ, not the historical Christ being the ground of that. And the same with all of reality. Um, The historical Christ is a revelation of the eternal Son who has always been the begotten. That's right. Always been. The and the begotten. light that illumines all things. Right. So I mean, this is the. I think this is the. This is the place that saving the phenomena is actually saved, <laughs> literally saved. <laughs> okay, and th- this this brings us to Barfield's. I'm back there. Barfield's assessment of what went wrong, mm-hmm. and you know, I've 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 located this in the scientific revolution, but he points to two parts of it. Hmm. Um, the first of them is, I would say, sort of an overreaction uh, to Roger Bacon. Uh, not Roger. Francis, Francis, Francis Bacon. Bacon yeah. Roger Bacon is somebody else. <laughs> um, but um, Fran- uh, Francis Bacon 
is uh, one of the main figures behind the development of empiricism, uh, the idea that you make observations and draw conclusions from that, that this is how you find truth. But he also, and, and so he's a found, one of the founders of the modern scientific method, in other words. But along with that, he saw science as a vehicle for uh, exerting control over the world. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. So um, this is viewed by Tolkien, Lewis, by the Inklings in general, as evil. Now, I told you the joke that I heard about a guy who thought, you know, you hear... Uh, you hear, knowledge is power, France is bacon. Mm-hmm. Th- this guy thought they were said, being said, France, the country, is bacon. <laughs> yeah. Knowledge is power, France is bacon. Everybody <laughs> not sagely. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, you know we're on our second round. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we, we, the, this assessment of Lewis, we see, um, of uh, Bacon, we see in, in C.S. Lewis. This is what he said. And this quote is really good for a lot of different reasons. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both, in the practice of the technique, are ready to do things, both, meaning science and magic, um, are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. If we compare the chief trumpeter of the new era, Bacon, with Marlowe's Faustus, the similarity is striking. So they're identifying, and this is true of Tolkien too, it's Lewis, it's Barfield, the Inklings in general seem to identify Bacon's understanding of knowledge as being a means of control of, of the natural world, of exerting our control over nature as being the equivalent of black magic. Because it is, it, it is aimed at imposing, as Tolkien put it, imposing our will over things and wills. And it, yeah, this gets into some rich, rich. Oh, yeah, and in yeah. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there is a character who personifies this. Saruman. Saruman. He is the uh, modern scientist, and he, you know, I'm sure talked with Lewis and Barfield and others about this connection, uh, you know, extensively. The connection between magic as control and science as control have the same roots in, you know, uh, time, you know, in sort of certain intellectual developments, um, alchemy, you know, the whole alchemist agenda. You know, that's interesting to think about. We ought to do a show on alchemy. Wasn't it, wasn't it uh, Isaac Newton who spent a lot of time with the, you know, sort of, re- you know, reflecting on alchemy? Yeah, Daniel Borston was going to do a biography of Newton. He wanted to call it call it the first scientist. After he read Newton's writings and studied him, he named the biography The Last Magician. Yeah, there you go. Because Newton actually spent more time writing on alchemy and um, rather bizarre speculations on the Book of Revelation than he did on <laughs> physics. <laughs> but the only thing we remember him for is physics. Is right. right. Well, it's, it's interesting here, too, from um, kind of... Uh, history of ideas and, and history of philosophy in, in the current world we're in is, I mean, there, there are 
a, a few key moves that happen in Western thought that lead to, to isolating this knowledge as power as becoming really the chief problematic of the modern and contemporary world. Um, one of them, I think we talked about a lot of episodes ago, is when the shift happened in the West in, in, in not viewing God as, the, as in containing all the attributes in harmony, um, in divine simplicity, but starting to see God as nothing more than sheer power, arbitrary. That gets trickled down into seeing the creation as, as really just the expression of power and having its own autonomous power seeing human beings made in the image of almighty power as nothing more than power agents. And so knowledge is power. To manipulate a will upon the world is just mimicking this voluntaristic conception of God who imposes an arbitrary will on the world. So it, 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 there, there is this going on. So what is the, you know, the Foucaults of the world do is say basically every assertion of knowledge is nothing more than the assertion of one's will upon the world. And therefore anyone who makes a claim um, to truth, they're really just masquerading their assertion of their will onto people and oppressing others by their forcing others to conform to their interpretation of reality. And so, I mean, this is really where, where things are today with the kind of power struggles in societies. What you have is this competition of wills. There is no logos. There is no intelligible order. There is no hierarchy of meaning. There's nothing more than sheer power uh, uh, to either impose the will upon the world or have it opposed on you, and that's it. Right, and uh, along with that, we can connect this in with what you talked about before, that words do not connect to anything outside of themselves. Language is a closed game. Words only refer to other worlds, words they don't have any connection to reality. Um, that is based on the idea of the denial of the logos, that so, there is, in fact, nothing about language, about word, about logic that actually speaks to the wor world itself. Um, and as a result, if you go there, all that's left is power, which is what critical theory, critical race theory, all of those things posit about the nature of human society. All it is is a bunch of power games. And this is kind of filtered into the church world in ways that I don't think we're fully uh, able to appreciate. You know, take a person like, um, you know, uh, who is the guy behind the Second Great Awakening? Charles Finney. 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 Uh. His whole approach to the revival, to a revival, was kind of a, a process of manipulating people into a kind of a guilt trip, and then sort of relieving guilt through certain yeah, you kind know, of psychological, psychological manipulation. Yeah, yeah, a lot of psychological. Well, well, that's what we have in the church growth movement, largely. Uh, what we have in terms of uh, how people think about what should we be doing in terms of crafting our liturgy or worship experiences, well, we want to get people to sort of experience some kind of emotional high. So yeah. how do we generate that? Well, we generate it through certain kinds of emotive, uh, you know, music and language in order to bring this kind of crescendo that kind of is, I think, a kind of uh, Frankenstein mockery of genuine spiritual insight. And then you, you say, okay, boom, now, now you've, you've had some kind of spiritual encounter that we manufactured for you today. Kind of catharsis this, about, yeah. Right, right. It's not Where was the Holy Spirit before smoke machines? <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's right. And that's skinny right. jeans. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, what, but what you have with an earlier understanding is the Lagos is, suffuses reality, and everything that we say in some sense is participating in and referring to the Lagos and so the word of God is literally the word of God. You know, it's being communicated to you, communicated 
to you through you know a you know a, a, a way of accessing or getting in touch with reality. That's right. There there is a reality, and it isn't inert. It isn't something that we are are having to be little uh, platonic demiurges putting form onto things. Right. I mean, one of the things you get, the profound teaching of Christianity and its doctrine of the Trinity, um, prior to the creator-creation relation is the, 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 the God-word relation. That's an eternal relation. That in the is beginning the, was In the, the beginning word. was the Word, and the Word was, was with, with God, God, and the and word, word was God. So there's the, no space. There is no space. And this is a prior relation. This isn't a creature-creator relation. This is not a social construct. This is the ground of the possible. This possi- is what makes social constructs possible. That's right. And it is. And what's interesting, it's interesting about it is it's telling you that, that um, the infinite source of all things, the beginning and end of all things, the source of all things is eloquent by nature, is communicative in the very being. It's a communicative being. It's in, and so, therefore, that communicative dimension is um, um, shed forth into everything that's created. That's why the rest of John's Gospels in the prologue goes, um, through the word all things were made. Nothing was made that was not made through this word, and this word illumines everything that has been created. So the illuminative, the communicative dimension, the theophantic, the theophasis, the theophany is grounded in that eternal relation before it becomes um, posited in the creation itself. And then people suppress it, they don't receive it, and then they're, they're illumined so, to, yeah, to see it again. We don't uh, receive it, and we do suppress it because of sin, yeah. but yeah. it's because we're made in God's image that our words can have meaning. They can yeah. actually convey tr- uh, yeah. truth. We're communicative. Yeah, it, one of the things that I'm, I've been struck by listening to this is something I've never considered before. The word communicate is connected to the word commune. Mm. Oh, yeah. That is to say that we have some sort of, of close, intimate relationship with each other through our communication. Yeah. We are communing with each other. Um, just like when we talk about communion, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ, as Paul says. Yeah. So, um, but, one of the things that I was, I've always been struck by, by the Lewis quote I, I read a bit ago, is the idea that uh, people in the past always understood that the purpose of human life was to confirm, to conform the soul to reality, rather than the opposite, trying to conform reality to our wishes. So I'll just sort of drop that one there. The other big problem, according to Barfield, is Galileo. Mm -hmm. And Barfield's got a really interesting analysis here. I've done a lot of work with Galileo, and let me give you the short version of it. Pretty much everything you think happened in there is probably wrong. <laughs> um, the, the situation with Galileo was not at all how it's normally depicted. But one of the things that's interesting is that Copernicus, for example, was never condemned. None of Copernicus's ideas were condemned, even though he argued you know, for heliocentrism. Galileo is the one who gets into trouble. And he gets into trouble for a couple of reasons. One of them is he had a penchant for making enemies unnecessarily. Uh, he, he, he I can lo- identify with that guy. A, he was a yeah. pug kid. <laughs> well, it was an early pug kid. <laughs> well, what, what, what he would do, is, well, let me give you an example. The one that finally got him done in is he approached the Pope and asked for permission to write a dialogue 
describing the geocentric system and the heliocentric system and giving the best arguments for both so that people could, you know, could make up their own minds. And the Pope said to him, you know, that, that's great, Galileo, go right ahead. Uh, I'll be happy for you to do that. But this is what I think. It's perfectly possible for God to have created a, a geocentric universe but gave it the appearances of being heliocentric. And Galileo said, oh, that's a very interesting idea. Thank you. So he wrote his dialogue. It featured a guy supporting heliocentrism, a guy supporting geocentrism, and a guy in the middle whose name was Simplicius. <laughs> now, Let me guess who that's referring now, to. Sim <laughs> now, he said Simplicius was an Aristotelian natural philosopher, except there is none. <laughs> Simplicius is a simpleton. He's the village idiot of the, pre the piece. So you go through this entire discussion, and at the end of it, Simplicius thanks the two people for their their the, for the the um, the debate. He said it was very interesting, and then he says, you know, I think it would have been possible for God to have created a geocentric universe, but gave it all the appearances of being heliocentric. <laughs> he put now, the word. Note it. <laughs> he put the words of his friend, the Pope, in the mouth of the village idiot. Okay, and that's the thing that's going to get the Pope so pissed off at him that he ends up being condemned in silence. Okay, they don't tell you that in your science classes. Okay, it doesn't but, serve the narrative, as they say. But but here here's the interesting thing that Barfield does, and this this is something really interesting. Um, the Church had said that it was perfectly acceptable to teach heliocentrism as a theory, but you could not teach it as fact. Galileo taught it as fact. And what Galileo said, in essence, is that if you save the appearances, remember that phrase? If you find a way of saving the appearances, then that is true. And once he did that, it changed the nature of theory. Up to this point, theory had been, you know, you could propose something, you could debate it, see how well it works, and so on. But what, he, what Galileo did is he turned that, that, just this simple matter of coming up with something that actually works to describe the universe, turning it into objective, hardcore truth that exists outside of our perception, outside of our minds outside of our understanding that was the thing that Galileo did that was that fundamentally in a lot of ways changed the nature of knowledge and that is where he sees along with Bacon Barfield sees the real split occurring between the old way of looking at the world in which we participated in the world yeah. in a very real way and where the world becomes something outside of ourself and an object yeah it was the invention of objects. That's the well. Yeah. There's but the, and and that's true. And, and yeah. there's another dimension that, to this though, and that's the the hubris. Yeah. So what it does is it closes off inquiry. Yeah. We see. Okay, now we've arrived. Yeah. Now we've arrived. Now, uh, you know, later on, Kuhn yeah. uh, with the structure of scientific Series of science, revolutions. Yeah. yeah. You know, he talks about the paradigm. Yeah. He's trying to reintroduce this idea of yeah. you know with regard to theory. Theory. You know, it comes from theros, Theor, I remember, yeah. you know, in, in the Greek, which just simply means to see. So what you're saying, you know, when you have a theory is I, I see something. Now it has, you know, it takes, does, 
you know, when you say you see something, you're not in effect saying I see everything. That's right. I, there may be something out of view, something yeah. I can't perceive, something that may, uh, in, under certain conditions, come to the surface that I can't see at the moment. Um, and that is, is lost to us yeah. when we harden the categories and, and say, okay, this new w- theory, which appears to to do uh, a better job of, of saving the appearances, is the, the final story. Maybe it's not. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think that's the, I mean, uh, when you talk about the classical ways of, of reality that, that Christians held to and, and altered in light of the Trinity and Incarnation, I think for, for the most profound understandings of them, they were fully participatory and yet recognizing the distinction of other creaturely realities. Um, it was an interconnected and interrelated world. Um, all things um, participated in the gift of being. So therefore, they had a participatory relationship to God, their creator. They were not God. They were not an extension of God, but they fully participated in being, which was the gift of God. And so uh, Paul's line is, in him we live and move and have our being. In him, the participatory. So there is no such thing, for example, as an atheist who can exist in a space outside a relation to God. They wouldn't exist, period. Well, Sam Harris thinks you can. Yeah, all of it, yeah. He, he obviously doesn't <laughs> understand either being or existence. Um, but then, then the other thing is that goes along with this is the, the, the participatory relation of our knowledge. So my knowledge of, you know, that theology pug uh, cast pint glass, is in some sense a sharing in its reality. I am participating in its reality, and it's, it, it's, it's participating in mine. These things are communi- communal. They're not... I love to communicate with That's this. right. You are. But they're, yeah, I'm, I'm communing <laughs> right now. Communication. <laughs> That's right. But, the, but, the, but that was the way, that's the way knowledge, I mean, Thomas Aquinas and, and, and the, all the different theologians were working with that, that shared connectedness of things. You're not, there's, not an, there's not a gap um, between the, the realities that, ha, that, that is bridged by a will, a human will, an assertion. It is rather a, a participation of, of creaturely sharing. Um, that this reality is impinging, if you will, inviting me into... It's my participation in its reality that gives me knowledge of it. And that's hard for us to think about because we're so used to thinking of myself extrinsic to it that I don't have any relationship to it. Yeah. And th- this, this is something that Bar- Barfield, again, talks about quite a bit. So, for example, you know, the old, old thing about if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make any noise? And the, Barfield's answer would be, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and... You know, for us, that seems absurd because when the tree falls, it's going to cause vibrations in the air, which we define as, well, what are they? The vibrations in the air are sound waves, which may in fact exist, but are they noise? When, does, when do the sound waves become noise? They become noise when we hear them yep. and evaluate them. So, for example, a lot of the music that my students listen to, they define as music. I define as noise. You're speaking okay. ex-cathedra. Yeah, so, <laughs> no, but, but the point is, until we participate in it, until we assess it, until we evaluate it, until we give it meaning, it isn't anything. 
Now, this is, this is where folks get a little nervous mm-hmm. because this seems to introduce a kind of, uh, I think, arbitrary subjectivism to the, you know, our, our thinking about this matter. Trust me, their music isn't music. It's noise. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is, is the idea that if we are made in the image of God and we have access to the, to the Lagos, we have a means by which to adjudicate uh, our, uh, you know, our sort of our experiences, judge them in light of something uh, that transcends everything. So our judgments are not purely subjective. Therefore, in other words, they're because we're participating in the lagas. They are participating in God's own truth. We may not make proper judgments all the time, but we're not operating arbitrarily either. Yeah, it's not. It's not grounded in in our subjectivity. It's actually grounded in the relationship. And that's where the difference lies. Right. Now, of course, those, those people who don't have a, say, conscious relationship to God through Christ, um, they're still participating in God's truth uh, in ways that they don't appreciate or know how to give thanks for. Yeah. Uh, or maybe, are there, maybe they're resisting uh, the, the, the moral call to give thanks. But they're still benefiting Right, they're, yeah. they're not. Yeah. They're not. No one is. No one is ar- arbitrarily doing anything. Yeah, yeah. Everybody is depending upon God's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, grace and goodness and wisdom all the time. I, th- I think. I think for Barfield, he's trying to say that to, to to if if you know. I hope this isn't too confusing for everybody, um, but I think what he's trying to say is that because matter and the natural world are not the principal reality but the divine mind is. Therefore, divine consciousness is what we participate in to be consciousness of any reality that is natural at all. And it is that that is the ground of... Now, this doesn't obliterate selfhood. That's right. No, it's it, not. It actually yeah, establishes yeah, it. that's right. It, it's actually the establishment of self, a, a creaturely selfhood. To be a creaturely self is, in a creaturely way, to share in a participation in the consciousness that is the most fundamental reality behind all things. The reason I bring that up is I yeah. think that many people, when you go this go down this road, they yeah. assume obliteration, thinking almost in a kind of Eastern way. Yeah. Of the you know the the drop of water falling into the ocean. You yeah. Know, that kind of thing. Yeah. No, this is in a way in the biblical way. It's just participating in the mind of Christ. I mean, what what else could that be? I mean, Christ is the eternal Son of God. To participate in the mind of Christ is not only to participate in his human humanity, but into his divinity. So here we have something kind of paradoxical, because it's the basis of our individuation, our individual you know, identity, yeah. but also uh, because this is the ground of reality itself, our existence is participating in something much bigger than ourselves. Yeah, right? it's worth noting Barfield eventually gets here. <laughs> where, where we are, but but there are a couple of inter, intervening steps. Um, the interesting thing about this to me, it, and this is not someplace where the article or I suppose Barfield goes, is in Genesis 2, where God brings the animals to Adam and asks him to name them. And it says that whatever name Adam gave them, that was their name. Now, there are a couple of ways of looking at this. The way I've always looked at it is, well, first of all, the person who gives the name has authority over the thing. Okay, parents name their children. Okay. But along with that, naming in Hebrew 
uh, something's name is supposed to reflect its nature. Yeah. So in order to give it its proper name, Adam had to study the creature. Well, we and so there's, a, the, there's an issue of taxonomy and things like that. And we see that with Eve. She's named Eve because she will be the mother of all the living, not because Adam thinks Eve sounds cool. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the Hebrew hava, yeah. which means living. Yeah. And by the way, he doesn't name her until after the fall. Right, right. Okay. Uh, in the garden, she's just the woman. But that's also it's only the, after the fall that, that he but, names her. But. but there's also a reason behind that, she, yeah. because she was taken out of the man. Right. Um, but the, 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 the next part of this, though, what Barfield would, might say on this is that in naming the animals, the Adam is defining them. He is giving them meaning, and he is in a very real sense participating and communing with them. We have this kind of union with nature taking place, although Adam is in the, the position of the, the regent over it. Now, this is something that's, I think, lost on modern people. We see it in Romans 8, where we're told that the creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God. So it's bound to decay until the sons of God are revealed. Now, I think what that implies is that there's something ab about our participation in God and our participation in the natural world that helps the natural world be what it's meant to be, right? Yeah, and it, it's... So we're like mediating. Yeah, it's also analogous to uh, what is said about the prophets, that it was revealed to them that they were not writing what they were writing for themselves, but for us. You know, there, there, it, it's, there's an analogy there. All of this stuff really revolves around the revealing of the sons of God. One of the things I've, always, I've, I've often thought about with regard to naming, like when you think about the naming of Jacob and Esau, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a sense in which they really were what they were named. <laughs> yeah. You know, Esau means red, uh, could have to do with, you know, his, his complexion, but it could also have to do with the fact that he was a violent man. And then you have, you know, Jacob, the heel grabber who trips other people up. Why do you trip somebody up? Well, if you're in a race with somebody and you trip that person up, you get ahead of them, right? Yeah. You know, so he, he's able to get ahead of others because of his uh, power of deception or his ability to deceive people. On the other hand, it's also kind of a warning to the community. Hey, watch out for this guy. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's a liar. <laughs> this guy is a violent man. You know, this is someone you need to be careful around, you know. So there's a kind of a, a, a kind of another dimension to this. It's, it's, it's interesting. It reminds me of one of my my uh, professors I had uh, years ago. Um, he was he was a character. Uh, he, he's actually a retired. Uh, he was retiring. He's University of Cambridge in UK, and he's retired. Nicholas Lash. He's a oh, yeah, Roman Catholic uh, theologian, and actually his you probably know his uh, his uh, well his sister was a famous writer, and his nephew like Ray Fiennes, the actor. He was a real interesting character, but he was talking about the self-naming of God in, in, uh, in Exodus. And he said, notice about this. I mean, I mean, names reveal nature, and God names you know, himself by not referencing anything creaturely, but merely the sheer being. But he said, you know, in an interesting way, because God is not referencing anything creaturely, there's a, there is in the Hebrew a bit of uh, taunt going on. God's basically saying, well, well who shall I say... Um, is the God of the children of Israel. And God's basically saying, you know, I am who I am, 
Um, I am that I am. Yeah, I'm being the infinite source. But because you don't know what this is, it, my name is none of your business. So in a weird, weird way, God, the incomprehensibility of God is saying, you know what? Who, who, who is the God that is the God of the ages? None of your business. You don't have access to that inner sanctum. All, you can know the name. Well, and, and, yeah. that, and this is why idolatry is such a problem. That's right. Because it's always misleading. Yeah. yeah. Um, we can't know the essence. We can know that there's a God, not the essence. Of, that's been theologians of Christianity's cry all along. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going back to Barfield again. <laughs> not okay. Barfield. You're not going to get us back on point again. <laughs> yeah. This, this, this is what comes from having been a professor for 27 years. Um, you, you try to keep on sub <laughs> and usually fail miserably. Um, it, 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 interesting quote. Before the scientific revolution, the world was more like a garment men wore about them than a stage on which they moved. That is, I think, that captures the essence of what, what Barfield is saying. The scientific revolution really changes the way we perceive our relationship with the world around us. Now, so how do we get beyond this? Well, one of the things that he points out, and this is something we talked about in the last podcast, which you guys will need to listen to. Uh, it'll be out Monday. Um, one of the things that he points to is that in the Middle Ages, when people read the Bible, they understood it operating on multiple levels. When we read the Bible, we're always concerned with just sort of the literal meaning, what, what is being said, what does it mean, all of that kind of thing. In the Middle Ages, they believed that that was an important component of the Scripture, certainly, but that wasn't the limit of what Scripture was saying. A Scripture could be read on four different levels. Um, you've got the literal, you've got the allegorical, you've got the tropological, and you've got the anagogical. And I'm not going to bother defining those. Listen to the last podcast. Okay. But the point is that when they looked at the text, they could see it operating on all these different levels. And that applied not just to the Bible, but it applied to the world around them. So that they could look at the world around them and see the literal thing that was going on, but they would also, along with this, see all kinds of deeper meanings. They saw the entire world as being meaningful. It's not a world of facts, or at least it's not just a world of facts. It's a world of meaning. So and, like when we see the first psalm, we're told that there is a tree, right? Now we can look at a tree and we can understand a tree at one level, the literal level, and with that we can see a lot of marvelous things. We can see all of the... Uh, sort of bio, you know, sort of the chemical things that are going on in the tree. We can see you know, photosynthesis. We can see all that kind of stuff. But that's not what the psalmist is directing our attention to. He's saying that the tree is like something else, or something else is like the tree, right? And mm -hmm. and in a sense, we we we're familiar with that, and sometimes we don't admit it. But for example, I mean, when I just drove in with Chris from the airport, he showed me all the trees here. I'm not driving by looking at the trees thinking, oh man, those chemical compounds are profound. <laughs> That's right. I was looking at the aesthetic, the meaning of it. Why? Because right. it, it already is pointing to me right. to a different level than just that surface, ordinary sense experience reducible to the, you know, to the barest kind of components, right. aspects of it. And, and I've known many naturalists, I've known many scientists, you guys have two world-class guys, they play almost a kind of schizophrenic game in this yeah, respect. Yeah, Because they'll talk about 
you well, they're know, the in science. love with nature. They are. Yeah, so they'll talk are. about the science. Yeah, but that's not really why they're into nah. it. They're into it that's for the other right. stuff. They're in love with it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, I'm red green colorblind. Okay, and it turns out there's a company out there called Enchroma that has invented a kind of sunglasses. You can get them regular glasses as well that can correct for my kind of color vision. And I got them for Christmas last year. And this is the first fall that I've had those. And it's kind of weird as a 63-year-old man. Actually, it's kind of weird as someone who's hitting his 21st year for the third time <laughs> uh, it, to, to, uh, to see colors you've never seen before. Yeah. To... You know, I, I would... Lynn, that's I, what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'd adjust... I thought you were wearing gray. <laughs> Red, green. That, that. But, you know, it, and, and, you know I'll, I'll adjust. I'll go from one to the other to just look at the difference. And the world's a whole lot more beautiful than I ever knew. Now, that, that's... You know, so here's someone who's experienced both, and you're making a judgment relating... Mm. So... The way sort of philosophers of knowledge think today, you would not be able to legitimately make that judgment. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and here, here's the thing. One of the, the points that the romantic poets make and Barfield hints at when he's talking about the medievals, this, this is moving toward how do we resolve this? You know, where, where do we go? You know, the goal is to combine, um, you know, our, our current way of seeing the world and our understanding of science and all of that with this deeper participation in it. One of the things that he talks about is that, you know, with the romantics and with the medievals, they would look at the beauty of the world and they would, they would appreciate it. They would wonder at it. They would have all of these positive reactions to it. And yet it always left them with a sense of that, that there's something more. That the beauty of the world pointed beyond itself to a greater and more profound beauty that they longed for, that they wanted to participate in, and that is only ultimately found in God himself. So through this, there is actually, in a sense, almost an apologetic for God. There is also a a root to God that we never think about and never appreciate because we don't actually see and participate in the beauty of the world because we see it as something external to ourselves, objective, that we are not really connected to in a very deep and profound way. I think that's so, a good spot to wrap up the show. And we coincidentally have come to the end of the time. Okay. <laughs> Let, let me throw in one more quick sure, thing. Sure. One of the things Barfield does talk about is the Eucharist as a way of connecting with these deeper realities. Because here you have a mundane physical object, bread, wine, and so on, that has deeper spiritual significance, deeper spiritual meanings. And that through participation in the Eucharist, communion, communing with Christ, participating in his body and blood, as Paul puts it, we have a 
he sees through this a route toward this kind of um, final participation. It, it's a hint in that direction. So I thought I sh- ought to throw that one in before we finished up. Yeah, so. that's good stuff. Well, anyway, we really appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast, and uh, we know that there are folks who uh, listen uh, to us every week from all around the world or all over the world, and there are even people who give us money. Uh, we don't solicit it, but they just give it to us. Just recently, I saw a couple of gifts that were directed toward us, and these were things that uh, these were gifts that people gave because they just like what we do, and we're really grateful for that. But um, anyway, uh, thank you again for listening to the podcast, and we'll be with you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.